Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover of Shank Annis Tepper Campbell. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues and entertaining discussion. Today, we have Bill Barry, also known as BB of Draper & Kramer, to talk about commercial real estate finance. Mr. Barry has financed over a billion dollars worth of real estate over the duration of his career. And I would go into his background and what he does with Draper and Kramer, but it's best straight out of the horse's mouth. So I'll let, I'll be brief in my introductory remarks so we can just get straight to the interview. If listeners are interested in a certain topic, I want you to feel free to get in touch with us by contacting us at solutioncentersatcltd.com or by visiting our website, realestatebreakfast.com. We should also mention that the podcast is produced by SATC Solution Center L3C, which is the Education and Development Division of the law firm Shankanis Tepper Campbell LTD, where I am an attorney and principal. I should also mention that SATCLTD.com is a brand new, refreshed website. So please feel free to check out our new website, learn more about the firm, and what the firm has to offer. Shank Annis Tepper Campbell uh, creates legal and business solutions for individuals, entrepreneurs, and privately held companies. And we partner our clients to provide commercial real estate, business, estate planning, litigation, and insurance law guidance to grow your business and protect your assets. Without any further introduction, we'll talk commercial real estate finance with BB, Bill Berry of Draper & Kramer. Thanks so much. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, and joining me today is Bill Berry of Draper and Kramer, also known as BB. Bill, thanks for coming on the show. Phil, glad to be here. Appreciate it. Bill, you are uh, been with Draper and Kramer since 1989, and you currently head the commercial finance group. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at Draper and Kramer? Okay, as you mentioned, I've, I've ran the group since 1993, and our role in the real estate industry is to finance all types of commercial real estate. We're an intermediary, so we're a middleman. It's not our money, uh, but our clients use us to comb the whole market to finance a transaction, and that could be debt, equity, could be many, many different property types. It could be different types of loans, land loans, construction loans, bridge loans, permanent loans, kind of whatever source of capital one of our clients needs. So it's our job to provide that. I appreciate that. And I, I wanted you to come on the show because I wanted myself and our listeners to learn more about uh, the real estate finance aspect of it and how the deals get done. When you talk to, uh, you know, I was thinking about this on the way in this morning is, when you talk to people that are investing in real estate, sometimes they're only putting 10%, 20% down, but you're financing the other 89% of it or trying to coordinate with those people. So the people, the interests sometimes that you represent are taking on the lion's share of the risk, and so they have to really evaluate things. I, I saw in your bio that you financed over $25 billion in real estate. That was, that was with a B. Yeah, down. Well, that just means, Phil, I'm an old guy. So <laughs> I've been doing it for many, many years. I've been at Draper and Kramer now uh, 29 years. So gone through a couple of different recessions. Uh, but right now we're in a good time in real estate. 
Well, I thought that we'd just sort of jump in as to what we're, uh, what's going on right now, and then we might touch on a few topics while we work through what's going on right now. So sure. what type of asset class is popular right now from a, a bank, from a lender standpoint? Lender standpoint yeah. Well, I will tell you, um, first of all, I just mentioned there's many, many different types of lenders out there, so I'll talk generically. Um, right now, the favorite asset classes would be multi-tenant, industrial, industrial portfolios where you've got a diverse rent roll, uh, things like that. That's That would be number one. Apartments uh, would be number two. Stabilized apartments uh, in good metropolitan areas, infill locations, second. Um, grocery anchored retail with a small amount of shop space, and I can expand on retail here later on, but um, if you've got a, a very a good performing grocery store and just a, a small amount of shop space with it. That's still a, a favorite asset class. Retail has been uh, getting hammered here recently. The last couple of years, the whole Amazon effect on the on the market, in, online shopping, things like that. But uh, for the most part, the grocery anchored centers are still favored. Office, I would tell you, downtown office. Now that varies metropolitan area by metropolitan area, but I'll focus here on Chicago downtown office is perceived to be uh, much better performing than the suburban markets are in general. When you get out to the suburbs, it will vary kind of market by market that you're in. But I would say probably those four asset classes, if you have a single tenant deal, be it office, retail, industrial, and you have an investment grade tenant with a long-term lease, i.e. 15 years or longer, that also would be very well received in the marketplace. So if, uh, if you expand that to what are what's difficult to finance these days, again, and just talking in general markets, uh, well, let's talk about retail, big power centers, where you have your big box retailers, you know, um, you know, your soft goods and things like that, where what lenders don't like is a lot of these big centers when they were built, there's a lot of co-tenancy clauses yeah. where if one of the big boxes goes out of business, the other big boxes and other retailers can either get reduced rent or after a period of time they can then terminate their leases. So what's happened the last few years, you've seen that happen, especially happened 10 years ago when the, when the recession hit, that a lot of these uh, big boxes went out, you know, and we still see it today with bankruptcies, and then that just has a snowball effect on the rest of the retail centers. So big power centers, definitely difficult to finance. Hospitality has become more difficult to finance as the hospitality market softens. You can still get hospitality deals, hotel deals done, but on a very conservative basis, you know, i.e. 50%, 60% leverage and, and probably below. I talked about suburban office, still not a favorite asset class. Uh, had a client call us this week. They were looking to buy an office building, 100% leased office building, but out in the northwest suburbs uh, here in Chicago, which is perceived to be probably the weakest market. If you look at any really? sort of data, you're seeing vacancy rates at 25 to 30% vacancy. now. Our job is to try to paint as good a picture as we can when we're out trying to finance an asset like that. And so what we'll do, there's a lot of obsolete buildings that aren't financeable, so we'll remove all that from the data. But in, in general, suburban office, difficult to finance. Um, 
I get asked all the time about ground up condominiums, okay? Because what happened during the recession, any lender that had lent on ground up condominiums or what was in vogue at the time, you know, condominium conversions, many of those lenders lost uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on those really? types of deals. When the market crashed in, let's say, 08, 09, it was devastating. And so even today, you're starting to see some condo deals get built, but those are kind of the cream of the crop borrowers. Uh, there's recourse typically involved uh, or a significant amount of pre-sales, or they're much smaller deals that were getting built, you know, 10 years ago or so. So condominiums, I would put still down at a, an asset class. It's difficult uh, to finance. Um, trying to think what else. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a lot the other direction. I've seen a lot of condo deconversions right now. I sure. know there's been a lot of talk about that, but I, I see it a lot. Well, because the values of apartments have yeah. still remained very, very high where uh, on your brand new pristine apartment deals uh, here in the city, those are still selling at cap rates, you know, at 5% or, or below in many cases. And if you look at the condominium market, where you can buy these condos in bulk and and then rent them out, the value is still much greater as a rental. And so we've been financing, as you mentioned, some deconversions here. You know, they're not easy to get done, yeah. and lenders, you know, uh, will do them. Typically, not as high of leverage as they would maybe on a, a stabilized, just regular apartment deal. But you can still definitely get those done. A uh, couple of questions. I want to go sure. through some of these asset classes. Thanks for that breakdown. Um, one question I had, though, is general question, is when something is a more difficult deal to get done, like a northwest suburb office building, um, does that mean that the lender is going to require that the owner put up more equity in the building so there's less leverage? And is it also just going to be a higher interest rate? Um, it depends. Not necessarily a higher interest rate, but they're going to be more conservative in their underwriting. What you said initially, it probably lower loan dollars. There may be a shorter term amortization. Uh, it could be in some cases a higher rate. There may, may be higher uh, reserves established for tenant rollover, meaning uh, higher reserves for tenant improvements and lease commissions things like that. Right. It's going to be structured in general much more conservative than if it was a downtown office deal. Uh, it all depends. Everybody in my office makes fun of me, but I've always said there's no two deals are alike. They're like snowflakes. Yeah. But you really have to look at each individual deal. I mean, there's so many attributes that we have to get involved in and put yourself in the lender's shoes, right? What are you going to look at if you're financing anything? Number one, you're going to look at who the borrower is that's still number one a very very good well capitalized well experienced borrower can get a lot better terms than if it was somebody like me being the borrower yeah right um, but then you look at the property you look at the tenancy you know who are the tenants uh, how strong is their credit how long are their leases yeah we touched upon this but you look at the market right the northwest suburban office market perceived to be very very soft you look at that you look at all the comps in the area there's just so many things that we get involved in and any lender gets involved in before they make that decision to to lend on any deal that um, you know that's where a lot of people I think utilize our services because we have all that 
information. You know, Drink and Kramer uh, has been around 125 years, and we've been doing the, uh, the mortgage banking since inception. I've been there, as I mentioned, 29 years. So people hire us because of our experience and because there is just a lot of involved in financing something. Probably a, a lot of the laymen would think, oh, I just go to my bank. I'm going to, you know, they're going to give me the money. It's going to be at a good interest rate. I'm right. going to take it. Well, there are so many different types of lenders depending on, I always ask a borrower, ideally, Mr. Borrower, what do you want? Give me your ideal situation. And based on our knowledge of all the capital available, we try to fit that and we try to achieve that in, in our assignment. All right. There's so much I want to talk about there. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> where should I start? So. Let's talk about the different types of lenders because people okay. may not realize who the big players are. And before I get to that, quick little, uh, it's not a story, but I watch a lot of Shark Tank. What you're talking about kind of reminds me of Mark Cuban always says that the, the, sh the lenders, the people that are the investors, the, the money that comes into the deal are the smartest people in the room. And some of these, these lenders, um, they've got to be the smartest people in the room because they've got to figure out where they're placing all this capital. And... Um, it's just interesting that I think a lot of people look at real estate development as who are the people developing. And sure, they take on a lot of risk. They do a lot of work. But it's these lenders, the people making decisions on where to place the debt, uh, have a large responsibility to, to maintain that and, and make good decisions with, with that money. But anyway, well, uh, tell me about yeah. Well, I'd yeah. tell you, Phil, on that, uh, that's kind of changed over the years. I mentioned I've been... Uh, I've been at Draper Craver since 1989. So the, the first big recession I went through that affected real estate in the early 90s, many, and, and I'll, I'll uh, go into types of lenders as part of this, um, we represent 29 life insurance companies uh, investing their money in commercial real estate. So back in the early 90s, the life companies who were supposed to be very, very good, very smart lenders, as you indicated and stuff, they were, they were hammered where uh, values plummeted and many of your life companies who have been very aggressive in their underwriting and providing debt uh, suffered significant losses uh, and were, many were out of the market for four or five or six years. Uh, I remember in 1990 the, the motto was stay alive till 95 because it, those early years in the 90s were, were devastating. So I agree you're supposed to be smart. Um, People do, in some cases, learn their lessons, but what happened, okay, the life companies learned their lessons in the early 90s. Well, then a, a new form of lender, commercial mortgage-backed securities or conduits, a lot of people will commonly right. know them, as came in in the early 90s to replace the life companies. The life companies were still on the sidelines, so here come the conduits. And each year as that went by, it got easier to finance. It used to be volumes and volumes of paperwork were required. Uh, but that, you know, kind of streamlined. As we moved into, you know, the 90s, there was another uh, glitch or, or bubble in 1998 with the Russian ruble crisis that affected a lot of the CMBS lenders. But if you look back into the mid-2000s, the conduits were, they were lending, it was crazy lending. They were lending, you know, what supposedly 75% of value, but you could go out at that point in time and, and pretty much get an appraisal at whatever value you wanted. And in actuality, they were probably lending 100 and 110% of value at the time. So hmm. here comes the recession. 
and we all saw the movie, or many saw the movie The Big Short, right, which right. really affected the housing market. It was the same effect in the commercial market with this CMBS lending, um, where when the market crashed, you know, still today there's many loans that were done uh, back in 2006, 2007, early 2008 that were done at very, very high values, 10 years interest only, that are coming due now, and we still can't refinance the dollars. Um, and so, yes, a lot of smart people, but when smart people are making a lot of money uh, and your egos get involved, it's more, just give me more, give me more, give me more. And so we were, uh, you know, we were just as guilty. I mean, if our clients were getting the money, I mean, we were getting it, we were getting the properties appraised by appraisers and, you know, you had to take a step back, but everything was booming and you know how you get caught up in it. And so there was a real crash in, in 08 and 09 where the life companies weren't as affected as bad as the CMBS lenders, which uh, they all, sh they shut down for a two year period. Right. And, and now they're back, but in a much uh, more limited fashion and they've learned their lesson. Underwriting guidelines in the CMBS arena are now much more conservative than they were 10 years ago. Um, it's still kind of, the conduits are still doing the higher leverage compared to the life companies, uh, but much more reserved and much more conservative than it was 10 years ago. Let's talk about the banks, okay? The, everybody, when you talk about lenders, everybody says, oh, I, I've got banks. I mean, banks and banks yeah. are still the biggest lender out there. They, uh, many of your banks were hurt in the early 90s along with the life companies, but also many banks were significantly hurt when the recession hit in 08 and 09, and I, I alluded to the condominiums because that's the asset class that many of them suffered significant losses because they were the ones, they were the big source lending on uh, ground up condos, condominium conversions, and you know, there, there seemed to be no end in sight on where the housing market was going to go at that time. And so we, uh, as a company, Draper and Kramer, were heavily involved in doing some condominium convergence at that time. And, uh, and I remember, uh, as, unfortunately, as an investor in some of them, that uh, when that market stopped, it stopped. And, you know, we lost every penny of our equity we invested in, in a, a deal here in the city. And so uh, my point is, you, you reference a lot of smart people. And yes, most of the lenders have very, very smart people. But their job is still to, to get the money out, right? So you got to break down the lender, mm -hmm. okay? The loan officers all want to get the money out. I always uh, talk about the, the credit officers because those are the governors, so to speak. And those are the ones that are really determining uh, what deals get done and what are the economics of, of those deals. And in, in many cases, we as the, uh, the mortgage banker, and, and even in many cases the borrowers that we represent, they don't ever get to talk to the credit officers. I always say they're like the Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah. That they're right. the one behind the curtain saying, no, 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 you can't do that, you can't do that. The loan officer is the one communicating with them, trying to get the deal done. But I, I will say, over the last 10 years, the credit officers have, you know, they've, they've become conservative. And, uh, and, and now you'll see that we service a portfolio of about three and a half billion dollars of life company loans. We do not have one uh, problem loan in our whole, whole portfolio. And that is true throughout the industry. And if you look at the CMBS uh, loans that have been done the last 
two or three or four years since everybody learned their lesson, there's really pretty much not an issue or many issues to even speak of. So um, hopefully that will help us. There will be another recession at sure. some point. We just don't know when it is. Things seem to be, be booming. I talked to a client this morning that's in the manufacturing business, and he, he's been in the business for 30-some years. He's never seen it this hot, so to speak. He's a scrap dealer yeah. and stuff. And so he was telling me that uh, it is booming right now on all fronts on the manufacturing side. So that bodes well for all of us. At some point, though, things are, are going to end. Um, back to other types of lenders. So we've talked about banks, CMBS lenders, okay, insurance companies. One of the uh, largest sources now for bridge funding, bridge lending, and now even as some of the banks have pulled back on construction lending, the source is doing construction lending, and that's what I call the debt funds, okay? A lot of these debt funds were formed back in 2008, 2009, 2010, when the, the markets crashed, and they were formed, they were gonna go in and buy all these loans that were underperforming, and it really never never uh, materialized because what happened, a lot of the, the servicers for these loans kept extending, kicking the can down the road, so to speak. So there never became the magnitude of these loans for these debt funds to, you know, to buy. And so they, they've tried to find ways that they can get their money out because these types of lenders are looking for higher yields right. uh, to return to their, their investors. And so if you've got a 50% leased office building or you've got a shopping center where maybe your anchor uh, went BK or moved out, something where you need some capital, lease things back up. These debt funds are, are the source that are providing a lot of that on a non-recourse basis. The banks will still provide it with recourse, but for non-recourse, it's the debt funds. And their spreads have come down dramatically the last you know, 12 months or so. Um, they'll provide leverage up to 75% loan to value. Uh, most of your banks are at 65%. They'll do it non-recourse. Um, their spreads are still higher than the banks, but economically to get that extra 10% of loan proceeds, it makes sense in many cases to pay a little higher interest rate or spread in order to get that extra 10% dollars. So is the debt funds is definitely a source. Is that because there just isn't as much distressed property out there? So yeah. the debt funds aren't. Yeah. You hit it on the head. They've got to get their money out. A lot of them are doing equity investments where you're, you know, you're in the riskiest position, so you're you're going to get more yield. But also, they're providing mezzanine debt, preferred equity. They'll do whole bridge loans where they're going up to 75, and in some cases on the construction lending side, where most of your banks have pulled back now, in particular on multifamily where banks are not going much higher than 60, maybe 65% loan to cost, some of these debt funds will go up to 75, 80, 85% loan to cost. And even though they're more expensive than the banks, they're still cheaper than your equity, going out and raising the equity. And so a lot of borrowers are utilizing debt funds now as their construction lender on deals. So life companies, banks, conduits, debt funds, uh, if you talk about multifamily, you have your agencies, right? I, I just read again this morning, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, another record year. I think they put out about $140 billion. Uh, 
into multifamily and senior housing. Right. That also includes like student housing and, and things like that. Uh, we're an FHA HUD insured lender. They're also booming. Uh, our business says since the recession, our FHA insur uh, insured lending group every year has set a record. Um, it used to be that no one wanted to do a HUD deal because they take a lot of time. They may take 12 to 18 months in I've, some cases. I've done several. Well, they take a while. But, Phil, but what happened yeah. when the recession hit and nobody was doing any construction lending and there was still multifamily developers that wanted to build, they turned to HUD. And they found out that it does take time and it's still a stack of paperwork, but the terms that HUD can provide, in some cases up to 85% of your cost, maybe even 90, that it made a whole lot of sense and it was worth their time to go through it. And so once they did one, now they keep coming back. So again, our business in that uh, arena is booming. Does Fannie or Freddie just have more capital, more capital available to well, lend right Well, it's whatever or? the government uh, will put a cap on yeah. them and the cap has continued to increase, but they've also created loopholes where now there's certain properties that are not included in the, in, in the cap, you know, if they have a green property program and things like that. And so they find ways around it. But there's still a, you know, for multifamily, you have to talk to the agencies. Um, now, we've had a lot of success um, with some of our life companies providing loans at, at much better rates in some cases than the agencies have, and in some cases, higher dollars. But as I said early on in this uh, discussion, it's still deal by deal. And so if we get an assignment on a deal, we'll go to the agencies, we'll go to the life companies, depending on the deal, we could go to the debt funds, we could go to the conduits. I mean, it's again, it's kind of our job to know the best source of capital for any, any project that we get an assignment for. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about your job since you just uh, capped it off with that. It, you uh, are in mortgage lending and commercial real estate finance. Do you work both directions? You represent the lender's interest or help them place the debt, and you also help people locate the debt. Our, our client is still the borrower. That's who pays us. The, okay. the borrower pays us. Now, that being said, I, I, I talked about the life companies that we represent, we have 29 of them. And what will happen in some cases is many of the life companies, if, if we have an assignment, I talked about the number one asset class, multi-tenant industrial. If we have a large industrial portfolio, many of our life companies will have a significant interest in, in lending on that. And we represent many of them. And so what happens is we'll, we'll show it to all of them but there's always some reason that one of them will step up and provide the best terms on a deal. You know, and maybe we talk a little bit about that. It's not always maybe the highest loan dollars. It's not always the best interest rate, which probably most people think, oh, that lender's got the best interest rate, I'm going with them. There's so many other variables that a lot of our clients will look at. You know, uh, what sort of prepayment flexibility does the loan have, right? Many of your life right. company loans have like a yield maintenance penalty. But what they've done uh, over the last few years as a way to win deals is provide much more liberal prepayment flexibility where maybe the last few years of a loan, it's open with no penalty or instead of yield maintenance, it's like a step-down formula, five, four, three, two, one, things like that. Um, 
maybe uh, one, one lender will have no reserves for taxes. You know, a lot of lenders now, when the rece- recession hit, you know, uh, borrowers uh, hadn't paid their taxes or quit paying them. So now most lenders will want to escrow for real estate taxes. They'll want to escrow for insurance premiums because you need to make sure the property is insured too. Right. right? Um, but that may be one of the criteria that they, we look at. Recourse versus non-recourse is always one of the, the biggest criteria. And when I get an assignment from a client, I always ask that, will you consider any recourse? And it, it varies among our clients. Some will always say, no matter what, Bill, I have to have non-recourse. And, and those are typically clients that have been in the business for many, many years. When things are good, you know, maybe people don't mind recourse, right? But when, when the recession hits and you're on recourse loans, um, you have to remember you can lose more than just your property then. Right. And we had that happen back prior to the recession in 08 and 09. We, um, Here, before you go in, tell, oh, yeah, tell, go people, ahead. tell people a little bit about what the difference is between recourse and non-recourse. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, uh, I'll, I'll just give you a, a kind of a simple example. If um, one of our, our clients buys a, um, a shopping center for $10 million and they want a loan for $7 million, okay, 70%. And let's assume it's got three or four anchors. We, pr- we provide them the loan. And then a couple of those anchors vacate, right? Bankruptcy. We still, as I mentioned, still see that going on today. The, uh, our borrower isn't well capitalized. He goes back to the lender and says, listen, I can't afford to make the debt service payment. I'm just going to give you the keys to the shopping center back. If it's a non-recourse loan and the borrower's done everything correct other than you know the tenant's vacated, he goes back and gives the lender the keys. The lender says, thank you. The lender takes the shopping center back. Um, if there's a recourse loan, same scenario. The borrower gives back the keys, but let's assume that he signed full recourse on that $7 million loan and the lender says, thank you but they can only, and they go and sell the shopping center and they only get $5 million for that shopping center. Um, it's the old adage, not so fast, my friend, to right. the borrower. They're going after that borrower for his other assets to recapture that $2 million. And that could be, you know, any, any marketable securities, any, any sort of uh, collateral he has, they have the right to, to go after that. And the story I was telling, when the recession First of all, back in the mid-2000s, a lot of our retail development clients, uh, when the housing market here in Chicago was booming out in the suburbs, they were going out and buying land at the next main intersection because they were going to build a shopping center at, at, on the corner, right? And they got, and they signed recourse, you know, for land loans. And when a recession hit, the housing market stopped. There was no building of these shopping centers anymore. They signed recourse. There's no income coming in on a land loan, right? And so we had some clients that unfortunately, you know, had to file bankruptcy. It was the only way to get out because they were recourse on these loans and the lenders, um, they want to pay back. They do. Yeah, 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 unfortunately they do, right? Right. So, um, anyhow, hopefully that explains the difference. But, um, But most of, I say a high percentage of our clients will uh, always say non-recourse, but I still have some clients that will say, no, I stand behind 
any of my properties and I don't mind signing recourse. And in, in many cases, if you sign recourse, that may allow you to get some better terms uh, as far as maybe higher leverage on a construction loan, uh, things like that. Maybe you get a, a little better interest rate. Uh, again, it's still deal by deal. Remember, snowflakes, right? But, but, but some borrowers um, can get higher leverage by providing recourse, and they don't mind doing that. Do you find that there's more non-recourse debt available today than there was during the recession, the last oh, recession? Oh, uh, by all means. Um, we talked about the debt funds, all those guys. We talked about uh, CMBS, conduits. The, that have come back. That's all non-recourse. Life companies, all non-recourse. It's really the banks that are your recourse lenders. And, and even today, many banks, as a way to compete for these stabilized, uh, pristine properties, you have banks now that are doing long-term uh, non-recourse financing as a program. Maybe they'll do 10 years fixed, where most banks want to do shorter three to five years, maybe seven. Some bank, big banks now will do long-term non-recourse. And many banks will do non-recourse at lower leverage levels. You know, where if they're typically going to lend 65, 70, maybe even 75% with recourse leverage on, on a deal, if, it, if the leverage request from the borrower is only 50%, maybe 55, uh, so many banks will do non-recourse then as well because they view it to be a safe investment. Nice. I'm going to circle back to uh, what you were talking about, the popular asset classes. Uh-huh. Uh, one thing, you know, some of the asset classes that you mentioned were a little bit intuitive to me, uh, like the unpopular was the suburban retail power centers. But one thing that was popular is uh, multi-tenant industrial. Over the years, you've heard a lot of political candidates talk about how American industry is down and I'd just like to hear more about why the lenders are interested in, in lending on multi-tenant industrial. Okay, well, that asset class, if you look at uh, the, um, the vacancy factors, they're, they're very, very strong right now. And many of our markets, even here in the Chicago area, you have under 10% vacancy factor. So that's number one. I talked earlier about the economy seems to be, you know, performing very, very well. So the, you know, the industrial market, as the economy goes, so, come, you know, so goes the industrial market and, and the need for large warehouse distributions. You, we talked about the Amazon effect. Many of your big Amazon has been responsible for these huge distribution centers all around the country, and others have followed suit. Um, but if you look at it from the risk of if you're lending on multi-tenant industrial, compare that to multi-tenant office, right? And let's assume that you, one of your tenants moves out, okay? The cost to re-tenant that space on an industrial building with a, just a small amount of office space is much, much less than if you're re-tenanting an office space. I look here, you guys have very nice office space, right? If you move out, Thank chances you. are, chances are the next tenant in here is gonna gut this space and you're gonna, that landlord is going to have to spend $50, $60, $70, $80 per square foot to retenant an office space here. On an industrial, uh, a, a brand new 30-foot clear, big industrial building, uh, maybe you got to spend 
two, three dollars a square foot wow. to retenant it. So from the lender standpoint, if they if you view, you know, the Armageddon situation, we're gonna get the property back, it's a lot less risky for them to lend on multi-tenant industrial than it is on multi-tenant office or multi-tenant retail, things like that, because the retenanting costs are much less. Interesting. What kind of rates are people getting these days? Well, uh, I had this discussion this morning as well. A lot of the, for long-term financing, your typical index that a lender's quote off of are a corresponding yield on U.S. Treasury. So let's say the 10-year Treasury in the last month has gone up about 40 basis points from 2.3% to 2.7%. That can impact a lot of deals, right? So, um, the index that people quote of has gone up. LIBOR, uh, that is the index that most people are prime, use for short-term floating rate uh, index on, on lending. As the Fed continues to raise rates, those short-term indexes have also gone up. Now, what you've seen though to counteract some of that is spreads that lenders charge um, on these deals have compressed. Hmm. And so to answer your question, rates in general on long-term 10-year fixed rate money uh, are in the fours, okay? Um, now, we, we could still, for very for low loan to value, we could still do something in the, in the higher threes, but most of in the 4%. Your short-term rates, uh, again, with LIBOR being a 30-day LIBOR is at 1.58 right now. Uh, you're also seeing rates, depending on the deal, you know, maybe in the mid to high threes, but also many cases in the fours. And we talked about the debt funds doing the higher leverage. Some of those rates may creep in the 5% range. But still, if you look back historically, I mentioned I've been in this business 29 years, right? Historically, even with the uptick that we've seen, rates are still very attractive. Right sure. Now. And I personally think that they're going to stay kind of in this range. I think there's still pr plenty of room for spreads to uh, continue to contract. Are spreads contracting because the lending atmosphere is so competitive? Yeah. There's, in all those lender types that we've talked about, there's, it's extremely competitive. And for the, the deals that everybody wants to do, right? The good borrower, the good property, the good tenant mix, long-term leases, the conservative leverage level in good markets, it's like a feeding frenzy. Spreads will con contract. And, and now we, we've been seeing deals on that have all the attributes that lenders like where spreads have been in the low hundreds in a couple of cases break um, under 100. Okay, and we haven't seen that since the heyday back in 05, 06, when everything was, was booming. Uh, you're going to continue to see that that happen, I believe. That is really interesting. And, and it's because I think another you know component of that is the prices are so inflated right now. There's probably not, is, there's a lot of people that want to buy property, or they're telling me is, uh, they're not finding the deals that they were finding five, six years ago. And so even though they have the, the money available, they can't figure out where they want to take it because the the price is so high. Well, same thing on the buy yeah. side. For the assets that people want to buy, right? The, right? the categories I talked about, still very, very competitive. 
But um, in many cases, if it's not one of the favorite asset classes, like let's take suburban office, right? We've had clients that three or four or five years ago bought suburban office properties that were gonna, maybe they weren't well leased, maybe they're 50% leased or so. They spent the money to redo all the common areas of uh, maybe bring in uh, more amenities, fitness centers, food courts, things like that, leased them back up, stabilized asset in the 90% leased range. Um, they can't sell it to make the money they thought they were gonna make because the cap rates for asset classes that aren't favored are still very high. And now on a selfish standpoint, what that's created is what we've been doing is going out and refinancing those properties and actually we're able to finance sure. a good chunk of that client's equity back. So instead of selling it, they're gonna hold it for maybe two or three more years and hope that the cap rates for those asset classes continue to compress or compress where they can then sell it at, at what they thought they were gonna sell it at when they underwrote the deal before they bought it. Right, it, uh, Bill, a couple other quick questions yeah. I wanna go through here. Um, a lot of people, or not a lot of people, some people might say, I have a local bank. We touched on this earlier, but we have a local bank. I like my local banker. Um, if I just go to my local bank, I'm not gonna be paying a mortgage broker. Or uh, uh, what would you say to that there? What sort of value are you guys creating rather than just going to your local bank? Well, uh, and, and believe me, we hear that in, in many cases. And in some cases, the a relationship bank where the borrower has all his deposits or her deposits, right? Uh, that bank, with that, if that relationship is that strong, they may well indeed be able to provide terms. And I've seen this, that the market won't provide, so to speak, right? Because sure. they value that client so much. But in general, um, our job as a mortgage banker is to get the best source of capital. And on an assignment, we may be going to 30, 40, 50, 60 different lenders on an assignment. I think my record's like 190 different lenders on a condominium. I was gonna a, ask on a you condominium. We, do, we did a large uh, construction loan on a, a large condominium deal here in the city back in 2010. And I already touched on it. No lender wanted to lend on condos at all. And we ended up and finally found a Japanese bank to be the lead on it. And it was such a large loan of a, you know, 220 million or so that they had to syndicate it. And we we have uh, Asian banks that are part of the syndicate that I never even had heard of. But uh, but my point is, on a typical assignment, we're not just going to one bank. We're going to the market. And even today, I've been doing this 29 years. I'm always amazed at which lender, what lender steps up on a given transaction, and it could blow away. You know that client's bank, so to speak. You know. Uh, maybe it's loan dollars, maybe it's interest rate, maybe it's non-recourse as opposed to the bank's recourse. Um, I think that a borrower leaves themselves, you know, they shortchange themselves by not going to the market. And if you look at the fees that we charge, you know, it all depends about the size of the deal. But if, if you're doing a 10-year fixed rate deal on something and we're charging a point on it, let's say, we just need to save the borrower 13 basis points uh, over that 10-year period uh, on an annual basis, and it pays for our fee. And so sure. um, 
I think we do do add value. And, and I would tell you in some cases, uh, a client will say, hey, Bill, I've got these two or three or four sources. They're my relationships. Uh, I want you to handle the process. Um, and and I'll t we'll still go to those three or four sources that are the client's relationship, but we'll take a reduced fee for that. And I always like to do that. Just it shows them. And, and most times, we're not doing it with one of those relationships. We're doing it with somebody that we introduce them to because it's our knowledge that we know the market, right? That's why people come to us, and yeah. that's our jobs. So. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no way a borrower could take an inventory of what 60 different lending well, facilities. And I always tell the client, their focus should be on getting the property built, or if it's already built, leasing it, managing it maintaining that occupancy. Yeah, you know, plenty, plenty of good do, work to be done. Yeah, let, let us do uh, the work and going out and get you the best loan. Well, what was the your favorite deal that you've ever done? Oh, I I guess my favorite deal would be the largest deal I've done. It was a, a large portfolio of uh, multifamily properties of $800 million. So that those that would tend to be your favorite. I, I would tell you, <laughs> sure. one of the um, interesting deals that I had never done before. One of, uh, this goes back years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago, one of our clients came to us and they were buying a vacant, um, a vacant retail building out in the western suburbs and they were going to make it into a flea market, okay? And <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, well, I've never financed a flea market. How, what lender is going to do that, right? And so um, we found one of our insurance companies that was willing to do it. And I'll never forget the uh, the uh, loan officer for the insurance company said, "Now, Bill, you, you can't call it a flea market. You have to call it an antique mall because there it was a go. much better <laughs> term to use." And so, and we got the deal done for the client. Where I thought going into that deal. I don't, you know, I never want to disappoint a client, but I thought to myself, I don't know. Usually I've got an idea who I'm going to talk to, and I'm trying to think, I don't know who I'm going to go to on this one, but we were able to get it done. So I think that would be probably one of my favorite deals. Yeah, these uh, 20 year old DVDs are definitely an antiques. <laughs> um, what was the, oh, I was going to ask you the weirdest or hardest deal, but it's got to be that flea market. Well, you have no, I, I will tell you, I had a deal, uh, this goes back years and years ago where a client came to me and they were going to be buying a, um, a large site in New Mexico, okay? And they were buying, and some of the site had uh, manufactured homes, which were, uh, these weren't your five-star pristine uh, manufactured homes. These were, you know, like third, you know, one or two-star. And, but our client had put up a, a million dollars Hard and needed to close in 30 days and again I thought to myself boy this is going to be a difficult assignment but I, I learned a valuable lesson on this one where um, I, I mentioned earlier you never know who's going to step up and provide the best terms and that borrower could ask me Bill you can only go to 50 lenders you got to pick your top 50 whatever it is you know we don't have much time and I would not have picked uh, I would just tell you the lender was AIG Insurance, okay? Hmm. And this is in New Mexico in a small town. And the reason that we were able to get it done with AIG was the head of uh, loan originations for AIG at the time 
in a previous life used to be a bull rider. And he had been to this town in New Mexico wow. as a bull rider, and he liked the town. He said, I like that. We'll, we'll do this deal. And so <laughs> we, we, we got the deal done. So that would, that would stack up as not, a, it was a difficult deal because uh, our client was buying the water rights. It wasn't just real estate, things like that. But we were able to get it done. But that's one where I never in 100 years would have said AIG will do that deal. Unbelievable. That's a good story. Well, Bill, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit. This is the last topic. I know okay. you have lots to do today. Um, your last topic is I just want to know how you got into commercial real estate finance and do you have any advice for the young professionals out there trying to make their way? Well, I got into it kind of by accident. Um, I went to school down at the uh, University of Illinois, accounting major. They have a tremendous accounting school there and was working as an accountant at, uh, well, I'm sold. It was uh, Price Waterhouse at the time. Now it's PwC after the merger with Coopers and Lybron. But um, one of my fraternity brothers um, from school became the head of a, a real estate firm here in Chicago and they needed a controller. And so I went there as their controller and we, I got involved in financing some of the properties that we had. And we used to utilize Draper and Kramer to help us finance some of those properties. And we happened to office in the same building as Draper and Kramer at the time. And I met a gentleman from Draper and Kramer down in the lobby one day. They had an opening and I'll shorten the story. Long story short, I made the move down on a Sunday night in September of 1989. I moved down five floors and became a mortgage banker. So for, for young people, um, I think real estate is a tremendous industry. It's a people business. Um, and there's many different facets of real estate you can get into, right? I always tell people, we've talked about all these various property types uh, that are in real estate. You could focus on one of those property types. But even within a certain property type, there's so many things you can do it, right? with it. You can design it if you're an architect. You can build it if you're a contractor. You can lease it leasing agent from both the tenant and the landlord side. You can finance it like I do as an intermediary or as a lender, right? You can buy it, uh, be an acquisitions officer. You can be a, an attorney with it, right? Uh, there's so many things that you can do. And so I tell people, usually the most difficult job to get in our industry is the first one. And I tell people, if you have an interest, get out and network with anybody you know in the industry and you're gonna to have to keep knocking on doors and hope that it's right place at right time. But what you'll see now, when I went to school down at Champaign, um, you know, again, you know, back in the, the 70s, we didn't really have any real estate related programs. There may have been a course or two, but now you, many of your large uh, universities have very good real estate programs, including the University of Illinois. And so now if any young person does have an interest in real estate, I would tell them why they're in school, focus on those real estate classes, get some of that knowledge, and that'll help you in the interview process. But network, network, network. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, I think one other thing that probably came very naturally to you as an accounting major, I would tell people is understand the numbers, take math classes, take accounting classes because if you can apply the numbers you can understand the numbers you're gonna have a leg up on the people that don't yeah it, it, it really has helped it you know underwriting you know looking at borrowers financials tenants financials the financials of any property that we're doing it, it has uh, been helpful but it's it's not the end-all you don't have to have an accounting background at all but it, it didn't hurt me at all 
Well, Bill, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate all your time, all your advice. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors created by the